0: Thank you very much. It's a joy to be here. I, I still face the embarrassment on occasion of being asked by someone whether I'm a visitor. And even though I've been here for over seven years, I am, as some of you know, frequently absent. And I appreciate it when there are those of you who consider me a missionary to other places uh, one reason why this study is going to be six weeks long is because after six weeks I will be gone again. And uh, so I appreciate the opportunity to be in my own church for six weeks in a row. That almost constitutes a record uh, for me. And some of you, next Sunday, I'm going to comment more on it, but last Last week I was returning from Moscow, and I will uh, report some on my three weeks in Moscow next Sunday in the morning worship. I was in Moscow on September 11, and I am very grateful to God that I got home safely and without any uh, negative uh, experiences on my way home, apart from it being an extremely long trip, an exhausting trip. We're going to do Hebrews in this class, He and you should have an outline, and it's important that people like me, who like to do things right, make a mistake right up the front, so if you look at session two on your outline, it says September twenty-three. It says September 23 for today. So if you'd like to correct the outline right up front, next Sunday is September 30. There probably are other mistakes on the outline too, but I will speak to my typist about this. The Hebrews is a fascinating document in the New Testament. And it's often neglected in the study in the church. For this reason, maybe there are two reasons. Uh, For much of the history of the church, it was thought that the Apostle Paul was the author of Hebrews. Maybe that's what you have learned at some point in your life, that Paul wrote Hebrews. And in fact, in older translations of the Bible, it will still say at the top of the page the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. But we have known actually for over a hundred years that with certainty we can say Paul did not write Hebrews. We'll talk next Sunday a little bit about the authorship of Hebrews. But once Hebrews was put outside the letters of Paul because of Paul's prominence in the church, Hebrews receive less attention. And I think the other reason Hebrews has received less attention is because of its long and very sophisticated argument about Melchizedek and the priesthood, an argument which I think we will see is extraordinarily sophisticated, very profound, and very interesting in its own way. But at the same time, It's an argument and a presentation that doesn't always appeal to everyone because of its detail and because of the intricacies that it presents of the Jewish sacrificial system and the priesthood and even the obtuseness, if we can say that, sometimes of the argument. Many of my seminary students are required to study Greek which is the original language of the New Testament. And seminary students are very fearful of Hebrews when it comes to Greek because it's some of the most difficult Greek of the New Testament. That's because the author of Hebrews was such a highly educated, very sophisticated person. And there's a world of difference, let us say, between reading the Gospel of John in Greek and reading Hebrews in Greek. In English, that tends to get evened out, and you can't always tell that the language is more sophisticated in one book than in another. But let me assure you that Hebrews is a very sophisticated document in the original language. It uses big vocabulary, unusual vocabulary, complex sentence structure, And it has many other things that we will talk about in the course of these weeks that make it, at some levels, slightly inaccessible. I want you to love Hebrews. This is a fascinating book. And I'm hoping at the end of six weeks that you have a new love for Hebrews, that you find it exciting, and that you have a good understanding of it. Now, in six weeks, we cannot go through Hebrews line by line. We can't even go through it paragraph by paragraph. So we're going to go at it thematically. And I believe that will still give us some rather significant entree into Hebrews. So if you look at the outline I've given you, today we're going to do the larger context in the early church for the book of Hebrews. Next Sunday... We're going to talk about the purpose and structure of Hebrews. Why did the author write this book? That's always an important question to ask. And how is the book structured? None of the writings of the New Testament tell us how they're structured. We have to figure that out just from reading it. And in some cases it's easy, in other cases it's very difficult. Hebrews is sort of in the middle. But we'll try to figure out the structure of Hebrews. And once we know something about the purpose of the book and the structure of the book, that in itself unlocks a great deal about understanding Hebrews. Then, as many of you already know, what is so overwhelming in the book of Hebrews is its presentation of Jesus Christ. The technical theological word... For the study of Jesus Christ is Christology. The ology part, as you maybe know, like biology, zoology, and so on, is the study of or the word about. So biology is the study of life, word about life. So Christology is the study of Christ. And Hebrews has what we call a very exalted Christology. The book of Hebrews presents a glorious, complex picture of Jesus Christ as the divine Son of God. It's what we often call a high Christology, that is, it emphasizes the deity of Christ. But not only does it emphasize the deity of Christ, there is no document in the New Testament that talks more about the humanity of Christ than does Hebrews. And then it presents Jesus as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which is a little different. And so the Christology of Hebrews is one of the major themes of Hebrews. Hebrews is, in some ways, a Christological document. And the Christology is so complex in Hebrews, we're going to take two Sundays to survey the Christology of Hebrews. And by doing that, We will, in effect, study much of the book of Hebrews in detail in those two Sundays. But Hebrews is not an abstract work about Jesus Christ. As we will learn, especially next Sunday, the author did not sit down and think, you know, I think it would be good if the church had a nice essay about Jesus Christ. I think I'll write an essay on Jesus Christ. No. We will talk next Sunday about the fact that the author of Hebrews had a pastoral concern. There was a pastoral problem in the churches to which this author was writing. There was a practical pastoral life situation. And it had to do primarily with the faith and faithfulness of ordinary believers. How were they to cope with life? How were they to cope with their situation? And so Hebrews has as its ultimate purpose a call to encouragement as we would say in 21st century American English to hang in there to be faithful to not depart from the faith not only does it have an encouragement it has some warning it says look out if you don't if you don't be faithful there are very high consequences so Hebrews talks a great deal about this journey of faith and it's presented as a journey and so I call it the pilgrimage of the believers in Hebrews and that's what we will do in our fifth section and that will introduce us to the other major theme in Hebrews Christology and journey of the believer those are the two major themes and it's really the journey of the believer that is the purpose of Hebrews that's why the author wrote to get to this topic And that will then bring us on board with the importance of things in Hebrews. And then the last Sunday, we will take up what is really a subcategory of the pilgrim journey of the believer, and that's salvation and perfection. Hebrews uses the word perfection quite a bit, and it calls believers to perfection. That's often how it's translated. And the word perfection frightens people, because as you know, there are very few of us who are perfect. Some of us have perfect spouses, but most, most of us have trouble with the word perfection, as you know. The word actually would better be translated maturity. But it is the word for perfect. It means reaching the goal. And that's what maturity is. And Hebrews has some very complicated discussions about reaching the goal, about maturity, which is also called salvation. And Hebrews raises what in the history of the church has been one of the most difficult theological problems the church has ever faced. And that is, can one lose one's salvation? Can one be, quote, saved by God, unquote, and then lose it? And Hebrews, more than any other text in the New Testament, seems to say explicitly up front, yes, you can. If you aren't careful, you will lose it. And that has raised some deep theological questions in the history of the church. Some of you are aware of that. Others of you may not be. But it's been one of the biggest debates in the history of the church. Maybe the big debates, theologically, are the problem of evil. Where does evil come from? And then the question of, can one lose one's salvation? And those, in some sense, are two parts of a larger question, and that is, how much freedom does one really have? Are our lives determined by God, or do we have freedom? Very deep theological questions. So that will be our sixth Sunday on October 28th, God willing. And that's a major topic in Hebrews as well. So these topics should allow us to get an excellent handle on Hebrews. Now, in the meantime, you need to read Hebrews. Hebrews is not a very long text. You should be able, if my... I haven't done this yet myself, uh, freshly, but I will this week, read Hebrews out loud. And I think you could read Hebrews out loud in 35 minutes. In English. And I think that you could read it silently and less. So hopefully you'll read Hebrews more than once during the next six weeks. And it really would help if you could read it all at once. Don't pay any attention to the chapter divisions, which weren't there originally, as you know. They were put in centuries later just to help us find their place. So just read Hebrews at a stretch. And that will give you a better sense of what Hebrews is about. And if you, can do, if you could do that every week, you'd get an A. But I won't ask you, but try, try to do it more than once. And that will help us get on board together to understand Hebrews. Then I have on here some other things that we will look at next week, a summary of Hebrews, an outline of Hebrews. And I always list some things to read. And for some people, that's terrifying. Some of you have absolutely no interest in reading big books about Hebrews, so just, if you want, you can tear off the last page and throw it away. It won't offend me. But I have learned in every class I ever teach in the church, and I do this most Sundays somewhere, usually not here, but I I do this in adult classes every Sunday, There are always some people who want to read more. And so that third page is for such folk. And I've divided it up into uh, books that are simple and books that are complex. In case any of you wish someday, now or in the future, to read more about Hebrews. Now each Sunday, we we will have a formal question and answer period at the end of at least 10 minutes, maybe 15. But you should also be free to interrupt as we go along. Raise your hand, and I will either acknowledge you immediately, or if I don't, it means I'm deliberately putting you off for the moment. So don't, don't be too nervous. And then once I hear your question, I'll make a judgment as to whether it's good to deal with it right away or postpone it. Please feel free to ask questions. Is this, are we kind of together? All right. So Hebrews, this wonderful text. Hebrews, as all documents in the New Testament, is set in the context of the first century A.D. in the Roman Empire. What culturally we call the Greco-Roman world. Politically, it was the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean Sea, ruled by an emperor and the Senate in Rome. Culturally, the world was deeply influenced by the Greek culture that had come through the classical period of Athens in the 4th century B.C. And Greek was the universal language, not Latin. Latin might have been the official language of the Roman people in the city of Rome but Greek was actually the universal language and even the Roman emperors announced all their decrees bilingually in Greek and Latin because Greek was the official and unofficial language of everybody also we know that Judaism was very strong at this time and Jerusalem was the center of Judaism. That goes way back, as you know from the Old Testament reading, to the days before King David, who really made Jerusalem central. And Jerusalem had been through many trials, and was now in the period of the second temple. The first temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., And eventually, Jews returned to the land of Palestine and they rebuilt the temple. And so, this period scholars call Second Temple Judaism, the period of the Second Temple. And it was in this period that Jesus lived, that the early church began, that Paul lived, and that all the documents, more or less, of the New Testament were written. And so understanding something of Judaism is important as well. Judaism as a culture and religion was tolerated by the Roman government. Pagan people didn't like Judaism. They thought it was strange. But it was tolerated. And one reason Rome tolerated Judaism is because it was ancient. And Romans liked things that were ancient. If it was old, it was good. The Jews had a second thing that Romans liked. They had a temple. And the Romans thought that anybody worth his or her salt who was interested in God ought to have a temple. And because Jews had a beautiful temple in Jerusalem, which of course the Romans destroyed in A.D. 70 for other reasons, but they did respect the fact that Jews had a temple. When the church began, to oversimplify but act can be said accurately, the church began as a group within Judaism, indistinguishable within Judaism. And eventually, the church began to get an identity of its own and became separate from Judaism and when the church separated from Judaism it in a sense lost the protection that Judaism had in the Roman Empire and then the church would be viewed by Romans as an upstart young movement had no age had no tradition so it wasn't worth anything and it had no temple no idols and so it couldn't be a very serious religion and so in informal ways the church began to get in trouble in the Roman Empire and there are many of these troubles are recounted in the New Testament what we might call minor localized persecutions the first famous one was when the Roman Emperor Nero, who was the Roman Emperor from 54 to 68 AD, and was the Roman Emperor during most of Paul's public ministry. And initially, I think Paul felt very comfortable under Emperor Nero. But as you know, the Emperor Nero became more and more obsessed with some of his own agenda. He became considered cruel. He murdered many members of his own family. And eventually, there was a big fire in Rome, AD 64. Um, Even some ancient scholars thought Nero probably started the fire uh, to get rid of old buildings in Rome. And this was a devastating fire, consumed much of the city And Nero decided to blame Christians for starting the fire. And so he arrested many Christians and had them tied on stakes and lit fire to them as human torches to punish them for starting the fire in Rome, which, of course, the Christians hadn't started. And one of the significances of this event is that in AD 64, Nero could tell the difference between a Christian and a Jew. So we know that the church and Judaism were starting to separate, at least in the city of Rome, by A.D. 64. Now that's a very general sweep to say something about the context of the early church. And I want to talk about Judaism and the church in the first century as a general context for the book of Hebrews, for this reason, as we will see, the book of Hebrews is a very Jewish book. Many people would say it's the most Jewish book in the New Testament because it talks so much about the priestly system of Israel. It talks about the high priest. It talks about Melchizedek. It talks about sacrifices. It talks about the tabernacle talks about Israel in the wilderness, all those heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. There's a great deal in Hebrews that has to do with Judaism. It's thoroughly Jewish in its background and uses the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, virtually in every paragraph. And so if we're going to understand Hebrews as a text of the early church in its context. We have to know something about Judaism and the church's relationship to Judaism in the first century AD. So I've divided this into two, three parts, as you can see on your outline. The Jesus movement, the fundamental controversies in the early church, and the beginning of the separation of church and Judaism. And then if we have time, I'll say a few words about the church and Judaism in the second century as a larger context. Now, you're sophisticated folk. You belong to the First Baptist Church of Pasadena. So you already know that Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was not a Christian. That still does surprise and shock some people, I know. But Jesus was a Jew. He was born in a Jewish family. He grew up in a Jewish culture. And in essence, apart from an exception or two, Jesus never left Jewish land. That's where he lived his life. And as an adult, After Jesus was baptized and undertook his, what we call his public ministry, Jesus ministered only to Jews. And he ministered almost entirely in Galilee, which was the northern section of the land of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. And those of you who've been there know that it's not a very big area. That's why Jesus could walk around Galilee in that culture you could get almost anywhere in Galilee within a couple days just by walking and Jesus' ministry was focused there, occasionally he went to Jerusalem and even that wasn't a terribly long journey walking and Judea in the southern part of the country where Jesus also had some experiences But Jesus was located within Judaism. And Jesus was both a teacher of the law and a prophet. Jesus, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the other groups in Israel at the time, was concerned about what did the law mean. As far as we know, Jesus never broke the law. He kept the law. But he had a different interpretation of the law than the Pharisees did, or the Sadducees, or the Essenes, or other Jewish groups. He had his emphasis in a different place. And in addition, he taught that the kingdom of God was arriving, the rule of God. And he invited people to enter the kingdom, which in effect was the renewal of the covenant with Israel. In that sense, Jesus was a prophet, calling Israel to repentance, saying, repent, turn to God, enter the rule of God, enter the kingdom of God. And as you know, Jesus told all kinds of parables to say this is what the kingdom of God is like. And in that context, taught how to obey the law. And Jesus had a lot of controversies, as you know. He often got into trouble. But it would seem clear that Jesus would never have been killed just for teaching something about the law. He'd have been argued with. That was the style of Second Temple Judaism. What Jesus got into trouble for was when he went up to Jerusalem and went inside the most sacred space, the temple, and turned over the tables of the money changers. I mean, this is bad. You can feel it. I mean, just imagine someone walking in at 11.30 this morning and knocking the pulpit over and tearing the organ out of the wall. We wouldn't be too happy. Jesus went into the temple and got into trouble, let's face it. And then you add all that together with the implications of what he was doing. He was seen as a troublemaker in the Roman Empire, and Jews were worried that Rome, the army of Rome, would come and kill them all. So it was important to get rid of troublemakers like Jesus. But Jesus functioned in that context. But, but, Jesus preached the kingdom of God, he called disciples, And he always had hints that the kingdom of God was for everybody, as you know. And for instance, Jesus once said, people will come from the north and the south and the east and the west and sit down with Abraham. And so implicit in what Jesus said, and then you know the resurrected Jesus made it explicit going to all the world. Was the mission to the Gentiles. But then we move to the early church described in the opening chapters of Acts. And here you have the 12 apostles. And where do they all live? They live in Jerusalem. I mean, where else would you live if you were a good apostle, a good Jew who believed in God and that the kingdom of God had come? Well, you're going to hang out in the temple. So what did these apostles do? They went to the temple every day. They went up there to pray. And they went there to worship. Where else would you worship? Now the difference was that they believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises. What we call the Messiah. And the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. That's why we say Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. And so these early believers in Jesus all gathered around the temple and at the same time they started to worship Jesus and they started to repeat the teachings of Jesus. And so they were really sort of living kind of two lives, the temple life and gathering in each other's homes to study Jesus, to break bread together. To baptize people who repented. But it's still a Jewish movement. And nobody's going off to tell the Gentiles. And the church kind of moves along. And nothing seems to be happening in terms of the Gentile mission. Remember, Jesus has told the apostles to go into all the world. Nobody's going anywhere. They're, they're staying in Jerusalem. That's their comfort zone. Until Peter has that great vision. Remember? He has the vision in which a sheep or is let down from heaven. There are unclean animals in the sheep. And Peter's told in the, in the vision to eat unclean animals. And he knows that's a violation of the word of God. And he says, I can't do that. And the vision from God says, yes, you must. And, of course, the meaning of the vision was that he should go to Caesarea. Caesarea was the, we don't have a map, so this will be the coastline of Palestine. This will be the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River. That's the Dead Sea. This is Jerusalem. This is Egypt down here. This is Syria up here. And here's Capernaum. And right about over here is Caesarea, which is the capital of the Roman province of Judea. And so that's where Cornelius lives because he's a Roman army officer. And that's where the governor would live and the army would be stationed and so on. And so Peter is told to go up and see Cornelius. And so he goes. And that's the first conversion of a Gentile. And Peter is leading the church in Jerusalem. He comes back and says, good grief, a Gentile has received the Holy Spirit. A Gentile has come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. God has called a Gentile into the church. Now, the book of Acts does not say this. This is my theory now. But by the next page in the book of Acts, Peter is no longer the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James, the brother of Jesus, is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. What happened? I think Jerusalem quietly said, Peter, you know, if you can go and hang out with a Gentile and break the law and eat unclean food you're really not fit to lead the church in Jerusalem and so the church went to Jesus' brother that's safe who by the way the church nicknamed James the Just because he was such a pious man he led the church in Jerusalem for the next 30 years we don't know much about him from the New Testament but we know about it from other sources So Peter had started this so-called Gentile mission. Then, as you know, the church was gaining some difficulty. It says in the book of Acts, this is amazing, that there was a persecution, chapter 8, and people had to flee Jerusalem. But the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Isn't that astounding? The leaders didn't flee you'd think they'd be the ones who'd be in most danger my theory is that the apostles were solidly Jewish so they stayed the people who had to flee were the people that were starting to think you know I think the message of Jesus should be taken to the Gentiles and that was the bridge that the church started to cross and eventually a church was established in Antioch. Antioch was up here in Syria up say about here and it was a major wealthy Roman city very cosmopolitan and a church started in Antioch and remember Barnabas went from Jerusalem up here he was uh, a good Jerusalem boy. Remember, he'd brought all his money to the apostles. And he was born on an island out here, Crete. And um, Barnabas, in other words, was not a, a local Palestinian. He was outside. So he had a more cosmopolitan vision so he was sent up to check out Antioch he went up there and what we eventually learn is that the church in Antioch was the first integrated church it was the first place where Jews and Gentiles worshipped together in the church this was a radical step and that's why it was out of Antioch that the mission to the world began not Jerusalem and remember that Barnabas eventually recruited a teacher named Saul who lived in Tarsus Tarsus my map is but this is going to be what we call Asia Minor today that's Turkey and over here is Greece and right about in this corner of Asia Minor was Tarsus where Saul grew up and he had gone back home here to live after his Damascus Road experience and he was rejected in Jerusalem, dangerous place for him to be and so he went to Tarsus where he lived for a few years In we don't know what he did studied Then Barnabas recruited him to come to Antioch to be a teacher. And we know how the story turns out. Saul, who then becomes Paul, becomes the dominant figure, even more important than Barnabas. And the church in Antioch sends Barnabas and Paul out as missionaries to the Gentile world. And all of Paul's missionary journeys come out of Antioch. He goes from Antioch out and preaches, comes back to Antioch. That's his real home base as a missionary because Antioch is the integrated church. It's where Jew and Gentile are together, where the church begins to realize what's happening. Now point two, the fundamental controversies. We know this primarily from Paul. Paul becomes the great apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's self-belief is that on the road to Damascus, when Jesus appeared to him, not only did he come to believe in Jesus, what we call his conversion, but he came to understand his call. It says in the book of Acts and in Galatians, where Paul tells us about this himself, that what happened when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road is that he was called right there on the spot to become an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul even says he was really called from his mother's womb, like Jeremiah. He's using Jeremiah language. Paul came to believe that he was born to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul's passion... What Paul wants to do more than anything else, and this is written large in all the letters of Paul, is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul starts preaching the gospel to Gentiles. These are non-Jews. And so Paul goes and preaches all over Asia Minor, and then eventually Paul goes and preaches all over Greece, until Paul says in Romans 15 that he's preached the gospel everywhere in the east. Now he has to go to the west. Because he's this dedicated apostle to the Gentiles. But this is the problem. Paul believed, and we're not going to do Paul's theology, so you're going to have to just take my word for it now. Paul believed that in Christ there was no longer Jew or Greek, as he says in Galatians 3.28. And that Abraham, number one Jew, Abraham got right with God through faith, not through circumcision. Because in Genesis 15, it says that Abraham believed God, and God credited that for righteousness. It's not until Genesis 17 that Abraham is circumcised. and faith alone that relates one to God not the law thus Gentiles can have faith in God through the work of Jesus Christ and be saved and they don't keep the law in fact Paul teaches that the law in effect has come to the end It's fulfilled its purpose. It's run its course. Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law. And therefore, Gentiles don't need to keep the law. In fact, Paul argues Gentiles shouldn't keep the law. And so this becomes the single biggest fight in the early church. You know from the book of Acts, chapter 15, it says there were some brothers in the church who taught That in order to be saved, you had to do two things believe in Jesus Christ and be circumcised. Keep the law. And they had a conference, remember, to argue this out. And Paul was the one who was dedicated to the point of view that Gentiles did not need to keep the law. But we know from the letters of Paul that in virtually every church he founded, this was a fight. This was a huge fight in Galatians. Galatians is all about this controversy in the early church. Galatians was written to churches, by the way, right about here in the middle of Asia Minor, was the province of Galatia. And there, there were two groups of teachers. There was the Paul type, who said, You live by the Spirit, not by the law faith is the door and then the teachers who said you must keep the law in addition to believing in Jesus that became the controversy and the early church then struggled with this we don't have time to go into every passage but this is said over and over again in the early church let me read one passage this will be from Romans chapter 2, right near the end. Romans 2, 28 and 29. Listen to how dramatic this really is. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, And real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Now, Paul wrote that. That's very dramatic. Because Paul is redefining what a Jew is. Now, notice, Paul doesn't say, this is very important. Paul doesn't say that a person who has internal heart circumcision is a Christian. He says a person who has internal heart circumcision is a Jew. And he's talking about Gentiles. Because Paul's entire intellectual framework has to do with being part of God's family. And God's family, by definition for Paul, were Jews. So he's rethinking it. Paul never once uses the word Christian in any of his letters. In fact, the word Christian is hardly ever used in the first century. Does not occur in Paul. Doesn't occur in Matthew, Mark, Luke. Doesn't occur in Hebrews. Doesn't occur in Revelation. Doesn't occur in First, Second, Third John. Does occur in Acts and First Peter briefly. The word Christian doesn't become a common word until after 100 A.D. And the word Christianity never appears until after 100 A.D. The people we call Christians in Paul's day didn't call themselves Christians they would have called themselves followers of Jesus or the church we know they called themselves the church meaning a gathered group of God's family they called themselves the body of Christ but the word Christian hadn't taken yet and presumably, actually, it was outsiders who first said, oh, those people are Christians. They're Christ ones. And then the church finally decided, hey, that's a good name. We'll take that. But in this early time, the church still sees itself in some ways as part of Judaism. You can call it a reform movement or whatever but they're saying this, this is what Jesus really intended Jesus came to call sinners to repentance Jesus came to preach the kingdom now God validated Jesus through the resurrection we know Jesus is the Messiah raised from the dead God has put his seal of approval here this gospel is now for everybody. It's for the world. It's for the Gentile. That's what this is all about. That's what this movement is. But there was controversy over this within the church. And so the letters of Paul refer to this controversy. And the book of Hebrews, this is why we're talking about this today, the book of Hebrews is in the middle of this controversy. And to put it in the shortest possible form, the book of Hebrews is going to argue that Jesus is the real high priest. Very Jewish. And at the same time, by redefining Jesus as a high priest, is going to say, in essence, that this is a whole new thing. It's kind of having it both ways. Do you understand? So Hebrews is going to argue, in essence, that the Jesus movement is the most Jewish thing you can have. And at the same time, is going to argue that it's the newest, most different thing you can have. And so Hebrews is right at the middle of this kind of controversy that was taking place in the first century A.D. in the church. Self-definition. Who are we, the church was asking. And who are we especially in relationship to our roots? Judaism. And, point three, the church begins to separate from Judaism. When Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, we're all one in Christ. That's a kind of separation. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, when you behave... You should try not to offend Greeks, Jews, or the church. Paul is starting to think of humanity in three groups. The Greeks, meaning the Greeks and Romans. The Jews, meaning traditional Jews. And the church, meaning the new people of God. And Paul will sometimes reflect this awareness of separation and churches began to be separate and they worship separately they have their own worship and as we've said even Nero and his governmental aides could distinguish between Jews and Christians by A.D. 64 in the city of Rome and there must have been some separation we have some evidence fragmentary to be sure that by AD 80, this is a little later, AD 80, Jews may have been saying in their synagogues, when they blessed God, they had 18 prayers. They're wonderful prayers, by the way, in which they blessed God for various things. But prayer number 12 said, let all the heretics get up and leave. Now, what they were doing. We're trying to cover a lot of different heretics. But scholars think one of the heretic groups they wanted to get out of the synagogue were what we'd call the Christians. They maybe called them the Nazarenes, after Jesus of Nazareth. So Jews were starting to become conscious that we've got some folk in our synagogues that we want to push out. And the church people were saying, we don't want these narrow Jews who want to keep the law either. We want the Gentiles. And so there was this controversy and the church was starting to separate from its Jewish roots. Just a word about the second century because it gives us perspective. One of the first important authors of the second century was a man named Ignatius he lived in Asia Minor he became a martyr he was a bishop he was an important person in the church and he wrote seven letters that have survived and in his letters Ignatius is the first person to regularly use the word Christian in Christianity written about 110 AD he says we're Christians our religion is Christianity and he says explicitly we don't want to be like Jews so he says Jews fast on I always forget the dates Tuesday and Friday so he said if you're a Christian don't fast on Tuesday or Friday you fast on Monday and Thursday because if you fast on the same days that Jews fast on you're not a real Christian so he's, the, the, you sense the polemic you get to Justin Martyr, 150 A.D., one of the most important theologians of the second century A.D. Justin Martyr is the first Christian to call the church true Israel. He says, we're true Israel. Justin Martyr is the first Christian who picks up what we call the Old Testament. He didn't even call it the Old Testament yet. It's still just called scripture. Justin Martyr says, this scripture is a Christian book. It's not a Jewish book. Because it's all about Jesus. So it's a Christian book. By 175 A.D., the church started calling Scripture Old Testament. Justin Martyr said the church and Israel are separate. By 175 A.D., there was a famous bishop who lived in the, this eastern or western part of Asia Minor. His name was Melito. And one Good Friday, he preached a sermon that happens to have survived. And he was the first Christian who said, Jews are God killers because they crucified Jesus. And you know where that led in the history of the church. This is the real start of Christian anti-Semitism. Blaming the Jewish people in general. So by the end of the second century the church and Judaism were fairly separate and started going their separate ways and there's a long and sad history about that but in the first century when Hebrews was written the church was still struggling with its identity the church was still saying we're thoroughly Jewish but we're new We're rooted in Judaism, but we have Gentiles. The scripture is important, it's the most important thing, it's the word of God, and yet we have to reinterpret it. The law was given by God, but we're not under the law. Now that is the big context of Hebrews. So this is, this first Sunday is what I would call the big picture context of how we're going to read the book of Hebrews now. Now, I'm required at 10.30, about 10 seconds from now, to stop talking. And we can we have time for questions, comments, speeches. The only thing is I get to decide when a speech ends. Yes? Okay, it, well his name as we know him is Justin, J-U-S-T-I-N. Martyr is a nickname because he died for the faith m-a-r-t-y-r justin the martyr but he's just become known in the history of the church as justin martyr because he died for the faith he's a one interesting author he by the way he's one of the early writers to tell us describe a worship service describes baptism and the lord's supper and how they took communion to the shut-ins and A whole lot of things Justin tells us about. 150 AD. So he's a very important writer for gaining insight as to how the church was growing. Yes? (laughs) All right. The question is. I can understand why the church needed to redefine itself over against Judaism, in relationship to Judaism. But why was there such animosity by the end of the second century? That's one of the most important questions of early church history, and one of the most difficult to answer. Let me tell you some explanations. First of all there already existed in the ancient world a degree of anti-judaism the roman people didn't like jews human prejudice was well established already in the roman empire the romans didn't like jews because they thought jews were strange people they practiced circumcision which they saw as barbaric. They didn't have idols, which they thought was deficient. And Jewish people worshipped on the seventh day. They didn't go to work, so they were lazy. They had all kinds of prejudice against the Jewish people. One reason there's animosity is that cultural prejudice carried over into the church as the church became a Gentile institution. Second, as the church became a Gentile institution, as more and more Gentiles came into the church and became the dominant group by the second century, so that if a congregation had both Jews and Gentiles, the Gentiles could outvote the Jews any day. The Gentiles began who kind of lorded over the Jews. In fact, Paul already is discussing that in Romans. He says explicitly in Romans 11 to the Gentiles, don't boast over the Jews. It's wrong to boast. Which would mean that Paul knows already in A.D. 57 the Gentiles in the church in the city of Rome are already saying, hey, you know, we're more important than the Jews already in A.D. 57. Paul says, can't do that. Jews are God's people. You can't boast. You wouldn't even have the gospel if it weren't for the Jews. But that tension is there and develops. Third, the church, almost from the beginning, worshiped Jesus. Now, the church would have always said it was monotheistic. It had only one God. It didn't worship two gods. It worshipped the one God who is the creator of the universe, the God of Abraham. But they included Jesus along with God. Kind of a mystery. Jesus got divine honors. He got worship. Eventually, to the Jewish movement... This was blasphemy. This was worshipping two gods. And certainly by 100 AD, Jews couldn't tolerate this. They said, we can't tolerate that kind of worship. We have to push those people out. So that created hostility. So those are some of the things. Then Jews rebelled against the Roman Empire twice. AD 66 and A.D. 132 and in those two rebellions the Jews tried to get freedom and in both cases the Roman army crushed Jews and the church in both cases really said you know we don't want to get involved in this we're part of the Roman Empire and for that reason Jews and Christians were more alienated And then Jews believed they should keep the law. And Christians increasingly followed Paul and said, no, we don't keep the law. And they grew further and further apart. But that animosity was fed by sin, the culture of prejudice, and these various theological reasons. And, you know, by 400 AD the church was openly anti-Semitic one of the things I say sometimes to shock my students, this is also true by 500 AD the church had laws against Jews just like Hitler did in the 20th century economic job-related, where you can live, how much you can earn, etc. The church, you, you know our heroes, like Martin Luther, great Protestant hero, and John Calvin. These people we look to as the fountain of our Protestant theology, they were all very anti-Jewish. They promoted the destruction of synagogues and burning of Jewish manuscripts. The church had a bad record. There's no point in denying it. And one reason Adolf Hitler could do what he did is most of the church supported him. The German church and most of the rest of the world church didn't care. I mean, there were people who protested, of course, but they weren't the majority. That really became a wake-up call. In the last 50 years, the church has done a lot of adjusting. The church has come to realize for the first time that it has been guilty of a racial prejudice that they've tied to the gospel and the church is trying to get over it. This has become one of my own passions. So I've always been involved in Jewish-Christian dialogue. I've always related closely to Jewish rabbis and scholars and every year we here in southern California we have a nice meeting we get together and have dialogue and argument and share our faith and so on and we have a very close relationships but the church Roman Catholic and Protestant are trying to get a better vision. Not to deny our faith, not to deny our belief in Jesus, but to say we can believe in Jesus and at the same time not be anti-Semitic. I was on a Jewish TV program a couple years ago here in L.A. And it it was great because they were willing to accept my statement that we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, and that's, that's bottom line for us. But we don't think that has to mean anti Semitism. So they were very interested in what we taught at Fuller Seminary and, and so on. But that, that's maybe another story. But that's in part an answer to your wonderful question, big issue. One more question, maybe, or comment. Yes, sir. Uh, then we'll have two. Okay. No brief answers, how can one this, this, day, uh, be in this with the one right. considered Oh uh, yeah, that's pretty That's that's a good and big and difficult question. No, could you all hear? How can you be against Israeli state policy that treats Palestinians unjustly and not be considered anti Semitic? It's a hard road to walk, I'll tell you. Because I've walked it, I've been to Israel, I've met with Palestinians, I've met with Jews. I have friends on both sides, I think. It's not an easy road to walk. And we won't discuss it right now, except let me make one statement. It's very important to make a distinction between being Jewish and being Israeli, although Israelis are generally Jews. The Israeli government does not necessarily represent the hopes of God for the Jewish people. Let's face it, the Israeli government has treated people unjustly. And we should be free to say that, and that doesn't make us anti-Semitic. But sometimes that's a hard proof. Yeah. Last comment. Oh, I don't think I mentioned another author named Melito. He, I don't know that he was a martyr. He was a Christian bishop and preacher. We happen to have a sermon of his that he preached on a Good Friday in which he denounced Jews. That sermon happens to survive. It's a beautiful sermon, apart from that content. I mean, it's poetic and beautiful. (coughs) It wasn't found until 1940. It was discovered. And uh, very interesting. Well, our time is up. God willing, we'll meet again next Sunday. For those of you who are asking, our, our older daughter went to the hospital yesterday thinking it was time to have the baby, and then the doctor sent her back home. She's been to the hospital twice. She's kind of disgusted. And there seemed to be maybe a few little complications, so we sort of sitting on the edge. Um, but if the baby is born, uh, Jeanette will try to go back, and I, I will stay here because I have to teach my classes so on but uh, this is our older daughter our, be our first grandchild some a lot of you are already grandparents so you know all this stuff but, but uh, and our younger daughter is living in south africa so we're what well, we're doing a, we're the telephone company really profits from us yeah? okay blessings